The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. Guidelines for the past several years have recommended our screening for primary aldosteronism in all patients with resistant hypertension. What we wanted to look at and what we were curious about is, are people actually doing it? Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Welcome to another episode of Annals on Call. This episode looks at an article, Testing for Primary Aldosteronism and Mineralocorticoid Receptor Antagonist Use Among U.S. Veterans, a retrospective cohort study that appears in the Annals of Internal Medicine, December 29, 2020. The first author and discussant is Dr. Jordi Cohen. She is an assistant professor of medicine and epidemiology. She's a clinical researcher who has focused on complex hypertension, secondary hypertension, and CKD, and a self-proclaimed data nerd. I think you will enjoy her explanation of this very important study. Thank you for listening. Jordi, thank you so much for joining us. I saw your article about how patients with severe hypertension are being treated at the VA. And I've been really obsessed with uh, aldosteronism uh, since we started the podcast. And I thought that that this study is really important because it shows where the lack of understanding from so many physicians exists on this topic. Maybe you can give us a little bit of the background of what led you to consider doing this study. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. I really appreciate the invite, and I couldn't agree with you more about how incredibly important this topic is, and I appreciate that you're now, you've now done several podcasts on it. Uh, I, in terms of the background, I think a, a large part of the important background on this has been covered, actually, in Annals of Internal Medicine, which is wonderful, where we've had a couple of articles in the past uh, two to three years that have demonstrated that there's this spectrum of primary aldosteronism that we have really good evidence exists in hypertension where most likely at least about 20% of people with resistant hypertension, the the primary cause of their hypertension is primary aldosteronism. And we we know that that resistant hypertension is incredibly common, that it occurs in most likely at least about 20% of patients with hypertension. Uh, So this is a huge portion of the U.S. population that probably have this issue and yet it's not being recognized. Um, guidelines for the past several years have uh, recommended our screening for primary aldosteronism in all patients with resistant hypertension. And yet what we wanted to look at and what we were curious about is are people actually doing it? There have been a couple of small studies, one out of Stanford with one of our senior authors, Vivek Bala, uh, another study out of Cornell, uh, another study out of in Illinois that have shown that in single health systems or small centers, rates of screening for primary aldosteronism in patients with resistant hypertension were very low. These studies showed that it was about 3% of people or 2% of people were being screened. 
we wanted to know if that was just specific to these health systems and maybe it was because these were referral centers where patients get their care through different locations and maybe their primary care doctor is somewhere else and their specialists are in this system. And so we figured that the VA was an excellent opportunity to look for this because we know it's a closed system and we're able to tell which patients use the VA for their primary care and for most of their care versus which patients only come in occasionally. Well, that's great. What else were the advantages of the VA database? Uh, so other advantages of the VA database were the fact that we have pharmacy fill data. So we know which patients actually fill their medications. Uh, veterans, I, I th there was a really great article actually last year in Annals about what's sort of different about veteran patients compared to non-veteran patients. And it's so important to think about their veteran history as part of their social history and who they are. But one thing that we do note and that we observed in this study is that they're really adherent, even though they may have some less trust of the healthcare system and of physicians, if they're told to take something and they're explained that this is an important medication for you to take, patients took their medications, or at least they filled them from the pharmacy. And that was really reassuring to see. I think something else that's really different about the VA and what's special about it is that because everybody has access to care and everybody has insurance essentially of some kind and some coverage to see providers in the VA, um, that it takes away a lot of barriers to obtaining necessary care that might exist in the community. I agree with that 100%. I work at a VA and one of the things I've always noticed is that the no-show rate in our clinics is much lower than it is in other clinics. So uh, I agree with everything you say. So let's talk about the patients in the study, and that's the famous table one. I always like to focus on table one. Who are these people? Uh, age, gender, race, obesity, whether or not they have hypokalemia. We'll talk about that some more. And who were their doctors? Were they primary care docs, nephrologists? Who? The cohort was quite large, and so it was almost 270,000 patients uh, that we included, and these were people who had resistant hypertension. It had to be incidents or new onset resistant hypertension. Um, these were pulled out of a cohort of patients that I had created for a separate study that's still in development that were incident hypertensive patients. So it had to be people that we knew that they had developed new onset hypertension while being followed in the VA, then subsequently developed resistant hypertension. And that's what gave us this group of 270,000 patients. A couple of important notes, the median age was 65. There were 4% women, which sounds low, but it's still 11,000 women. So I do think that we do get a good, good insight into a large number of women, even though it's a relatively smaller group. And there were 19% uh, Black non-Hispanic patients, so, about, so 51, almost 51,000 Black patients included. About half of the cohort was obese. And with regard to hypokalemia, um, only about 3% of the patients had hypokalemia, which we defined as a potassium level of less than or equal to 3.5 that had to have occurred in, at, at any time before the, the index date. What was your definition of obesity? Uh, BMI of 30, uh, greater than or equal to 30. Okay. So here's the uh, magic sauce. You have all these data. How'd you do the analysis? How'd you define the patients, the treatments, the testing? Because that's a large number. You, you had to have a supercomputer to do all this. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a data nerd. And so this has been a big part of my career development actually is developing this cohort and running analyses in this cohort. And so I did the analyses. Um, the way that we set it up was that uh, first off, our first question was, 
we wanted to know who was tested and who wasn't. And that's our table one. And so as I had initially described, those are just simple descriptive characteristics uh, of which people underwent testing and which ones didn't. And only 4,000 individuals underwent testing, we found. In terms of the way that we then analyzed it for the subsequent uh, analyses is we wanted to first ask, after adjusting for all of these different important factors that are relating to who might be tested for primary aldosteronism versus who isn't, just what we'll, we'll just adjust for all of them and see which factors were associated with being more likely to be tested. So for that analysis, our outcome was whether or not you were tested and all of our exposures were just all the different factors that are associated with having a high blood pressure and being seen in a clinic, such as what you described, which providers you see, if you, if you saw a nephrologist, a primary care doctor, an endocrinologist, how many blood pressure medications you were on and what type of blood pressure medications you were on when you developed resistant hypertension. Then the next step of what we did was a set of analyses where we wanted to ask the question of, if you were tested, how was testing then associated with your likelihood of being treated with evidence-based therapy with a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist? Uh, the Pathway 2 trial was a really great trial that was led by Richard McManus that came out, uh, I think it was last year in Lancet, that showed that mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists are a really outstanding treatment for resistant hypertension. And this supported data that was from a couple of decades ago in the ASCOT trial uh, and was a really elegant way to show that we really should be using mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists as our fourth agent in people with resistant hypertension. And so we wanted to see how many people have been doing that. And the way we did that was a time-updated COX model where we accounted for time-updated testing for primary aldosteronism and how that was associated with whether somebody received a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist or not. And the, these models were really cool in that they allowed us to account um, on different levels for both the patient factors associated with how likely they were to be tested and to receive a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist. So all those things we described from table one. Also provider factors such as their specialist and whether the provider sees a lot of patients with resistant hypertension and then center level factors. Uh, so the center factors that we considered were whether it, the center was in an academic or non-academic uh, hospital, whether the center was in a rural or non-rural location um, and what the center volume was. And so these were all taken into account into those models. Uh, and then we did similar models also looking at uh, the association of testing with degree of blood pressure control over time. And we had an average or a median of 17 blood pressures per patient over about four years of follow-up where we could see if testing was associated with subsequent blood pressure control. In a previous podcast I did, we had a long discussion about what is the appropriate testing. What was your definition of testing for this purpose? Yes, uh, I think that there are, uh, the confirmatory testing is very, very challenging, and that's why it's important to think about referring patients to subspecialists for confirmatory testing, which I know is discussed in the prior podcasts. For this purpose, it was just the initial screening tests or the initial tests that we tend to do just to assess if somebody is likely to have primary aldosteronism, and that's just a plasma uh, renin and a plasma aldosterone concentration. Uh, the plasma renin can either be the direct renin levels or plasma renin activity, uh, and those are interpreted differently and have different normal ranges, whereas the plasma aldosterone is pretty much the same everywhere. 
Um, there was a very cool recent study that just came out in hypertension a couple of weeks ago by Anand Vedia's group, who are the researchers in this world uh, on primary aldosteronism, um, which showed that those measures are quite unreliable and can vary from person to person. And we should probably be testing them more than once rather than just once. But of course, the study showed people are really not even checking them once. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Somebody told me that I, I, I think it was pathway two that they found that using a milleride was a, could be equivalent to using a mineralocorticoid uh, antagonist, especially in patients who, for some reason, you didn't want to use a mineralocorticoid antagonist. Did you consider that in your uh, treatment algorithm? Uh, we evaluated for a milleride as to whether patients were receiving it as one of the antihypertensives. Uh, they were in their own group of potassium-sparing diuretics, but we didn't look at that as an outcome. We specifically just looked at mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists. Um, and to your point, I agree. I think in resistant hypertension, a milleride is probably as good as uh, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists. But for patients with primary aldosteronism, although it's very effective and can work very well, there is some evidence suggesting that patients really benefit from that direct renin antagonist or that direct aldosterone antagonism because of target organ effects of aldosterone in primary aldosteronism. Okay, now for the big reveal. What are the major results of the study? Yeah, so our major results of the study are, first off, that we found that only 2% of people were being tested for primary aldosteronism, which is just as bad as what was seen in these smaller health systems, uh, if not slightly worse. Um, and it was really quite shocking. We thought it would be better in the VA because these patients follow uh, consistently within the same health system. There are no barriers to doing this sort of testing that we're aware of, um, but we found that it was consistent with our other private health systems. Uh, we also found that the rates of testing haven't improved over time and that the rates of testing don't vary from center to center. <laughs> there is very, very little variation depending regardless of the size of the center and where the center is located. The other really big things we found was that only 13% of people with resistant hypertension were treated with mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists. Uh, we found that people that were tested for primary aldosteronism were four times more likely to be started on a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist compared with people that were not tested, but that the rates were still atrociously low that almost all of these patients should be tested and almost all of these patients should be treated with mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist. Uh, we excluded people from the study who had advanced chronic kidney disease, which tend to be the people that um, can't tolerate these due to hyperkalemia. And so it really should have been everyone that was on these medications or at least the majority, and we found 13%. The other cool finding we found was that people that were tested for primary aldosteronism, even though they had higher blood pressures at baseline, about uh, five to six millimeter mercury higher blood pressure to start off the study, they ended up with lower blood pressures over time. Uh, and that was part, we, we suspect because the people that our testing for primary aldosteronism are also just in general more familiar with how to manage uh, resistant hypertension and probably follow these patients more closely and more attentively and that it ends up paying off. So what do you consider the strengths of the study? I think the strengths of the study are uh, some of what we discussed earlier, that we've got information on adherence. So I think a lot of providers attribute resistant hypertension to non-adherence. 
Uh, yet we saw that 90% of our patients were adherent to their medication, at least based off of pharmacy bills. Uh, so that wasn't a factor here, um, or at least it was unlikely to be because we have such good information on the fact that they were filling their medications. So they would have had to go through some extra effort to be throwing medications out that they weren't taking. The other strengths of the study include that we had such rich data on center level and provider level factors associated with testing. Um, one thing I forgot to mention in our findings, uh, we saw that endocrinologists and nephrologists unsurprisingly were much, much more likely to test patients for primary aldosteronism than primary care doctors or cardiologists. Uh, and that's something that we see practically, um, that it's much more common, at least anecdotally, that, that we see that the, the specialists who tend to manage primary aldosteronism are the ones who are more commonly testing it. Um, and so the fact that we could show that um, objectively was, was something that was pretty cool. And I think that also helps to identify targets of people that we can try to educate better on the importance of testing. And we also saw that uh, rural uh, centers were less likely to be tested. And that's something that's also an important target. Um, we're seeing that rural centers in general may have more barriers to, to, to appropriate care in other areas too. And it's an important area of ongoing um, implementation studies to see how we can do better in these centers. Any major limitations, do you think, of these data? As a hypertension nerd, I always worry about blood pressures measured in the clinic. Um, and so we don't always know the quality of the blood pressure measurements. And that was something that came up from a bunch of reviewers too, which I completely wholeheartedly agree with. Um, it's we, we can't know if these blood pressures that were elevated were truly elevated or if they were just white coat hypertension um, or if they were just poor quality blood pressure checks, which can be very common in clinics. Uh, we did exclude blood pressures that were checked in non-internal medicine clinics or non-primary care clinics. Uh, so we excluded blood pressures that were checked in like surgery clinic or in psychiatry clinic, but I don't know if that was enough to necessarily tell us if these blood pressures can be trusted in terms of their blood pressure control over time. These data are disappointing uh, for me because I'm, I've rapidly become an aldosterone nerd myself. And it was interesting, uh, David Calhoun, who was on one of the early podcasts and uh, certainly was on the panel for resistant hypertension guidelines uh, a number of years ago, uh, was one of my colleagues. He's no, no longer with us at UAB, but uh, he told me to use spironolactone maybe 15 years ago. And so I've been telling everybody that once you get to the fourth drug, it's got to be spironolactone. But a lot of primary care physicians don't know this. So what do we need our primary care physicians to do? And I think this is also relevant to hospitalists because, because I'm currently a hospitalist and I will see plenty of patients who come in who have resistant hypertension and no one has worked them up. And while I have them in the hospital, I can, I can order that also. So uh, what is your recommendation for what this study tells you we should be doing with primary care physicians and hospitalists? I think we need to increase their comfort level with the fact that everyone should be on these medications um, who has resistant hypertension unless they have a really obvious contraindication. Um, so part of that is just increasing comfort with these medications. I think that historically people just weren't comfortable prescribing spironolactone because they were worried about the close monitoring for hyperkalemia. It's so much easier to just throw on a beta blocker where you don't have to do blood work two weeks later. And then the other issue is that they were worried about the gynecomastia, of course, and that was a, a probably part of the reason why these medications were so underutilized in the VA in a predominantly male cohort. Uh, and so I think it's just important to educate people on the fact that 
you start low and slow and hyperkalemia really isn't that common of an issue unless somebody has advanced chronic kidney disease, in which case the patient should be in the hands of nephrology if possible anyway, helping with, to facilitate starting this medication if appropriate. Then also the fact that the gynecomastia is really much less common in a plaranone, which is no longer, um, a, no longer brand name. A plaranone is now available as a generic. Uh, it had been really expensive up until recently to get a plaranone, and I'm having a much easier time getting it for patients at a reasonable cost. It's still maybe a level two or a level three agent, but so are most of the long-acting beta blockers that we want to prescribe patients to. So I really don't think it should be a barrier to, to prescribing. Um, and often I have a lot of success with my nurse just filling out a really quick form to help get prior authorization if there is any barrier and it's worth it because we're going to get better blood pressure control from these agents and we help protect people from the target organ effects of aldosterone that are probably causing toxic damage to the heart and the kidneys whether or not the patient has primary aldosteronism uh, and so we really do think these medications have multiple beneficial effects beyond just the blood pressure lowering and uh, would you agree that if i get a patient in the hospital at the va who has not previously been tested, and it's clearly they have resistant hypertension, I might as well go ahead and test them at that opportunity. It depends on what they're in the hospital for, because renin is impacted, whether you're supine or sitting and, walk, and, and standing and walking around. And so we always check it um, after the person's been up and moving for an hour or two. So as long as they're working with physical therapy, I think that's like towards the end of their hospitalization, that's the great time to check it. But if they're sitting and lying in bed the whole time, it might not be ideal. But I do think it's not the worst idea to at least get that thought process going um, and to help the providers be thinking about testing for that. Well, I can't thank you enough for uh, joining uh, our podcast today. I think this is really useful. It's a major, major issue in primary care, and I, I don't think we can uh, stress it enough. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me on. Um, and I, I hope that people take away that the, these medications are really worth starting. And even though we often think we're just going to start them anyway, if we don't test or, and, and that we'll start them empirically, we're clearly not doing that. Um, so we can do better. We need to do better. Please educate your colleagues on how much more we should be testing for this. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. Guidelines of several organizations have stressed the evaluation of patients with resistant hypertension for aldosteronism and that we should use mineralocorticoid antagonists as our fourth drug in any patient who is already on three drugs and yet still has resistant hypertension. Yet a very low percentage of such patients receive either evaluation or recommended treatment as this study documents. We all should become more aggressive in the diagnosis and management of resistant hypertension. That's the message of this article, and it's a very important one. Thank you so much for listening. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.